All right, it is good to see you here this morning at Brian Bible Fellowship Church. Thank you for making the effort to be here, and may the Lord bless each of us as we continue our worship together. You have your Bible open to Matthew chapter 17, where our scripture was read for us just a few moments ago. And I would like to call your attention now to our text verse this morning. We'll reread that together. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into God's word uh, here in our message this morning. Look with me at verse number 19. Did you catch this? Maybe were you thinking to look for this as we were going through the uh, scripture together, looking for that question that might be there? You find it in verse number 19. Then came the disciples to Jesus apart and said, why could not we cast him out? Right there at the end of the verse. What a question that is. Why could not we cast him out? That'll be what we'll be looking at this morning. Let's join together. Let's bow our heads. We'll close our eyes. We'll ask God just this last time to speak to us. Father, we thank you for your kindness in giving us a new day. We thank you for your mercies that they're new every morning. And certainly we are dependent upon you. We come to pray uh, just this next time uh, before we look into your word to confess our dependence, our need, our physical uh, infirmities, our frailties, our mortality. All of these things we're reminded of and our spiritual needs. May we be conscious of those as well so that our hearts are humble and open before you, desirous for those things that we might take away from your word today that will help and guide us and equip us in this new and coming week. I pray, Lord, that you would just bless me here today as I seek to impart your word. I pray that you would give me the strength that's needed spiritually, physically, emotionally, and in every other way. Give clarity of thought and mind. And more than anything else, may the words of my heart and the meditation of my lips be, be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. For I pray these things now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, he asked him this. So as you know, what we're doing with this, looking at sort of the counterpart to that other series, Penetrating Questions of Jesus, thinking about the questions that Jesus so often asked people and how powerful they were and the message that was tied up in them. But the counterpart to that, the fact that so many people on so many different occasions asked Jesus questions, and one of the things that we noticed was that one of the largest groupings of such questions that we find uh, recorded for us in the Gospels uh, were from the disciples. And I've said to you before, I don't mind repeating it because I think it, it's something that we want to walk away with, we want to be reminded of. This to me is a great encouragement because it's uh, so nice to just think about the fact that they were people just like we are. They were curious about the things that we were, that we're curious about. They were burdened about the things that we're burdened about. All those types of things. So as you come to this this morning, you can identify readily and easily with them. And we have a very interesting thing to look at this morning because here you have a situation where these disciples were unable to come to the aid and rescue and help of a man who had approached them on behalf of his son who was physically and spiritually oppressed. He was demon-possessed, as we find out into the story. And when Jesus comes down from the mount, <clears throat> the man approaches Jesus and said, I asked your disciples for help, and they couldn't. And later the disciples came to Jesus, and we find that question in verse number 19, why could not we cast him out? In other words, if you think about this for a few moments, it brings to our attention the subject of powerlessness. They came for help. They came for help to Jesus' disciples, and they went away. the man went away empty. He was not able to be helped. 
And it brings, I think, before our attention this morning, the sobering truth about so often in our lives personally, we lack spiritual power. So often the church lacks spiritual power. Several weeks ago, I don't recall now how many, four or so, whatever it was, but when uh, you had a speaker on that particular Sunday, so there was a church over in Altoona that my wife and I had wanted to go and visit. I had met the man at a pastor's fellowship meeting, and we had a nice conversation afterwards, and uh, I had never been to his church before. I'd heard about the church because the man who helped there at that church as a youth pastor, his wife actually taught over at the school in Huntington for a year or so, so he knew of the church, never had had the opportunity to visit, so we went there in the morning. Well, then in the evening, we went to a different place just to see a, an old friend that uh, has uh, been someone that we've enjoyed uh, fellowshipping with, and, and, and when we've had the opportunity to attend services there, and even, I think I mentioned you, this same uh, pastor that had quite a struggle through the fall with phlebitis, and I was able to help a little bit there uh, when he was unable to be in the pulpit. But it was kind of unusual. Um, it was one of those nights, I've forgotten exactly what was going on in terms of the weather, except that we were kind of told there would be high winds. And uh, so, you know, anytime you have high winds like that, there's always the risk of power poles falling down or other problems like this, and they kind of warn you that that, that can happen, tree limbs and this type of thing, and you can have these instances of, uh, of, of power failure. So we got out to the church, and I noticed, you know, it's, everything's dark, but there were about four cars. We, we got there about 20 minutes early, so it didn't, didn't really worry me too much that I looked in the parking lot and didn't see it full or anything like that, but there were certainly cars there, but yet everything was dark. And so we went up, and I, so we got a few feet from the car, and I looked over, and I said, well, there's Pastor's car right there, so we know he's here. And we opened the door, went into the church, and you know what? There was no electricity. And we had seen right before we got to the church, I don't know, three quarters of a mile away, we had seen a truck over there with some lights going on and so forth. And so I wondered about that. But when we get, got to the church, the power was off. Well, I know him well enough, and he and I joke each other all the time. And I said, so we've come to the church without power. And he just kind of looked at me and he said, of which there are many. <laughs> And we got a good chuckle out of that. But, you know, sometimes I think about that and I think to myself, you know, that's really true. The church without power, of which there are many. And I think it's a wonderful thing to be able to look into this morning, this this morning, and to look into it with the attitude that the disciples had because they were truly burdened about it. I think that's half the battle right there won. If we understand this, if we're burdened about it, if we're concerned about it, this is the very reason that they came to Jesus with the question they did. They were concerned about their powerlessness and their inability to be of spiritual usefulness and blessing to people in need. I hope that's something that will grip our hearts as well. First of all, I want to describe for you the somber scene that we see in verses 14 through 18. Just some uh, Bible facts, so to speak, by way of broad introduction to this. First of all, we have this story that was read for you this morning from Matthew's account in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not in John. But we have it in the so-called synoptic gospels, that is, those gospels that seem to have similar content, but the writer, of course, presents it from the perspective and leadership of the Holy Spirit that he has. So we have it in Matthew, we have it in Mark, we have it in Luke. Only Matthew and Mark list the question. 
Of the accounts, Luke is the shortest. If you were to turn over to Luke and look there, you would find only about five verses to summarize this story. If you were to turn to Mark's account of this, which is found in chapter 9, you would find the longest account. So that's kind of interesting. And then the one that's before us this morning is sort of middle of the road. But we're in Matthew, and as long as we consult and uh, find the other details from especially Mark's account, as we may need them to uh, develop a, a full picture of the story, we're good with using Matthew. He has the question, and that's what, uh, that's what I'm particularly interested in this morning. As I say, this is to me a very somber scene that greets us here. And I, I believe that that's true for two reasons. First of all, it is certainly true from the perspective of the young man, the boy who is described here by his father. What do we know about his situation? Well, we know from Mark's gospel because Jesus asked the question, and if you want to write a little verse or something down here or there, I'll try to give you these. But one of the things that when the man approached Jesus about his son, Jesus asked the question, how long? How long has he had this? In our terminology, we say, how long, how long is this affliction? How long has he had this? And the father answers, from childhood. So we know that detail, that from childhood he had had this affliction, which consists of severe epileptic fits. So when you look at Matthew's gospel, um, I chuckle a little bit because when we were reading along with this, this happened to be one of the congregational verses, and my, my wife was going along, and she put a little word in, just one letter, but it almost made me laugh right while we were reading the Bible verses because verse number 15 says, Lord, have mercy on me for my son is lunatic. And she said, my son is a lunatic. <laughs> because we, well, we are a little bit more used to talking that way, right? But if, <laughs> if you look at that word lunatic, and, and that is kind of instructive because it's set up that way on purpose. My son is lunatic. Not a lunatic, my son is lunatic. In other words, he's afflicted with a particular condition is how that would come out for us. So what's the front part of that word lunatic? You, you know what that is? Moon. Yeah, mm -hmm, that's exactly right. Lunar makes us think of the moon. And we have lots of expressions that sort of help us describe what oftentimes in the ancient world, and even today, you know, you have many people who associate all kinds of strange and bizarre events with the phases of the moon. Uh, literally, I know people who, who still insist that a lot of that stuff is so, and I don't know anything about it except I'm not superstitious and just believe the Bible. But we do have expressions like people who bark at the moon. I've never quite seen someone do that. Don't really know that I care to, but we do know the expression. Sometimes we talk about someone being moonstruck. So we still have these expressions that come over, and that's where you get, my son is lunatic. It's not like he's crazy, although some people might have looked at him and wondered if he was crazy. But what the word is actually reflecting in the original is what today we would know as epilepsy. So he was severely physically afflicted uh, with these epileptic fits. Just out of curiosity this morning, this sort of makes it personal for us. How many of you have ever seen someone experience an epileptic fit? Okay. So not quite half the people here, but maybe a third of you who have seen this. I'll tell you, I never will forget as a boy the first time I ever saw this. We had gone to a place to eat, and I was just a young boy. I don't know if I was upper elementary or exactly what age I was, but we went to this place to eat, and it was a buffet-style thing. And so here we were, and it was lined up. If you think of you know all the food tables going like 
from our left to our right like this. And then you're on all the people going down to be uh, served the food are on one particular side. The people who are serving that food for you, you're not serving yourself, but the people who are ser serving the food for you, they're on the other side of the table. And so you go along and you figure out what's in these roasters and, and so forth that they have out there, what the food is. Well, all of a sudden, it was a black man actually, was behind the table and he had charge of one of, the, one of those roasters that had some kind of meat or something like that. And all of a sudden, he just, he started into a convulsion. He put his like his hand, into the hot food, and then just kind of, you know, had that, that, that fit. Uh, in the church in Huntington, we had uh, a man who was actually on our faculty for a while who uh, had an epileptic condition. You know, medicine kept it pretty much under control, but once in a while, if they were, they were experimenting with the medicine or changing dosage or something of that nature, and, and I actually witnessed him have one of those fits in church one time, and it's kind of a scary thing, really, if you don't understand it, and it can be severe. In this particular case, it was very, very severe, and of course, as you know, they certainly didn't have all the drugs and medications that we have today that help people keep this under control. But this is what he had. It's what the Bible says. When these fits would overtake him, some things would happen. There would be some symptoms. Um, sometimes you read the account, and it says that... that that the spirit tore him. It means he convulsed. He, he had a severe convulsion. And other times, as we read here in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 15, it was characterized by him gnashing his teeth. And some of us do that even without the epileptic fits, you know. I mean, it's uh, kind of scary, really, when you realize how much we grind our teeth. Now, I'll ask you something else. How many people hear this morning, you either wear or your dentist told you to wear a mouth guard at night. <laughs> okay, a couple of you are honest. I only saw three or four people on that. I'm really surprised it's not more than that. It's really getting to be almost an American condition. Really, I'm serious. You grind your teeth at night. Why do you grind your teeth at night? Well, you got too much going on stress and all kinds of problems that are going on. And in your subconscious, your mind is working on these things. For years, my dentist told me, you need to wear this mouth guard. Well, he got one for me, and I put that thing in there. Bah! I'm to sleep with that thing in my mouth. You know, and I, I'd put it in, and I'd take it out, and I'd, I'd never... Finally, one day I went in there, and I noticed that the dentist had a... You know, he had like a... With a, an articulated arm, there was a, like a television there. But it wasn't meant for you to watch television. It was meant for them to show you things. And then if you turn that thing on... They had something that had a wire on the end of it that just looked like a pen. It had a camera, was really what it was. Well, he turned that thing on and got that camera thing out and put it in my mouth and showed me what my teeth looked like from that grinding. I started wearing it from that day forward. You know, they say one picture's worth a thousand words. I took one look at that. Recently, I was there, and I've heard him tell me this before, but I hadn't really thought of it recently, and he said something about this or that, and he said, well, you're grinding your teeth, and I said, hey, Doc, I've been wearing that mouth guard. You know that, and he said, no, I'm not talking about it night. He said, I'm talking about during the day, and I thought to myself, you know, he's right. I have caught myself doing that part, just clenching, and, uh, but this man, so th that can be, you, you just don't, you can't even imagine the amount of pressure you generate on your teeth when you do that. It's, an, it's really amazing if you ever have someone explain it to you. It's about half scary, 
and uh, you can cause yourself some damage to your teeth that way. And it's, as I say, it's almost kind of become an American condition. So if you don't so much identify with that, I thought many people here this morning might, but that's what was going on as one of the symptoms of this. And then he foamed, it says. So you can imagine kind of just as it is, if you, if you saw a dog in that condition, it would really scare you. But now you've got someone who kind of foams at the mouth. Now, we find something else out too. If you look at how it's worded for us here in... Uh, Matthew's gospel, it says that oftentimes he would fall into the fire or into the water. Do you think that he just sort of did that, or do you think there was some correlation between that and the fact that really there was a demonic component to this, and the latter would be true? It was because there was a demonic, com- demonic component to this, because if we, were over, if we were to look in Mark's gospel, chapter 9 and verse 22, we find that these destructive tendencies, Mark tells us there that the spirit would cast him down into the fire or into the water. And folks, I'm just throwing out some little things as points of interest. We'll get to the real heart of the message in just a few moments. But, you know, this is a very interesting thing to notice the correlation between destructive tendencies and demonism. How many people this morning have seen a picture of this scary, scary internet challenge? It's a suicide challenge that people have, some people have gotten into the habit of trying to play with WhatsApp called Momo. Have you seen this? Maybe you don't know it by its name, but you have this hideous looking female with these bulging eyes. Have you seen this? And this weird mouth and, and just it's just a, a, it really looks like not something Western culture would have come up with. It looks like something you would have found if you went to look at the Incas or the, or the Mayans or, you know, into the dark jungles where there was, had been a lot of, of, of pagan and idolatrous and, you know, demonic type worship and influence. That's what's going on here. Do you see any correlation between American society today, if you know anything about suicide rates and the way suicide rates are, are, are increasing? And yes, we can, we can come up with many, many explanations of these things, but to me it's scary because I think it reflects more and more the satanic activity within our society as we continue to move away from biblical values, what's left if you think about that, you keep on moving away from the Bible, and what do you have left? Well, you don't have God's truth left, and people end up making wrecks of their lives. They have no place to go. They, they, they have no hope, and ultimately, the devil kills two birds with one stone because you not only oppress people, as was true here, but then ultimately, it, it ends up in a harvest of souls for not the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of darkness. And so that's another little thing that we can notice as we see here. Finally, there's another detail which makes it kind of interesting when in the end of the story, the Lord cast this demon out and it says he cried out. But if you look at Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, it says that he, was at, he had suffered as a result of this an inability to speak. So when I say here to you that this is a somber scene, I'm thinking about this, first of all, from the boy's standpoint, because what I've just described to you, how would you like to be in that condition? That's horrible. 
I mean, what's going on here is absolutely horrible, and I think it's important to make the point that the maladies, the physical outworkings that we're talking about, they're not exactly the same thing as demonic oppression, or, to, or rather demonic possession. You can have the one and not the other. And we have to be very careful because, you know, you do see these people on TV and you use some of these religious con artists that say, well, bring him in here and we're going to cast out the demon of pain. And, you know, he's got migraine headaches, so we're going to cast out the demon of headaches or whatever it is they come up with. And, you know, a lot of that stuff's baloney. But at the same point, we can notice that along with demonic activity and along with demonic possession, you oftentimes will find, will find accompanying it demonic oppression. And that's what's going on here, that associated with this demonic activity, this boy has a demon. He's actually demonized. He's demon-possessed. The devil's cruel. And oftentimes you do see these physical outworkings of it, but not always. You don't always have to have these things, and you don't always have to call the physical problem Many people are not demon-possessed who have some real physical problems, right? We would never want to make the jump and say, okay, it's a demon of this or a demon of that in every case. So you have to be careful how you work your way through this thing. There can be a correlation between the cruelty of demon possession and oppression and physical repercussions, but not always. And we don't certainly would never want to go to the place where we say that people who have epilepsy or something of this nature is because they have a demon of some kind, but it is true in this case. Finally, or two more things quickly before we leave this, we find out from Luke 9 and verse 38, so this is from Luke's account, that this is the father's only child. So you can imagine how this man felt as he came to the disciples looking for help for his son. Finally, one other detail is that just as Jesus says, bring him hither to me, if we read the other accounts, what we find out is the demon apparently sensing that the end is near. See, it's one thing for the demon not to worry about powerless disciples. But you think to yourself, so how often is Satan really worried about the church? Must not be too worried about the modern church. Must be about half taking advantage of the modern church. Seems like the modern church seems to go along with half of what is wrong with our society today. I'm talking about modern apostate Christianity. I'm not, I'm not talking about modern because we're in the 21st century. But as this boy is brought into the presence of the Lord, it almost as if the demon senses, now I'm in the presence of someone who's probably going to take action and this isn't going to end well for me. He throws this boy into a horrible convulsion. Just It says here that he was sore uh, vexed. In verse number 15, Lord have mercy on me for my son is lunatic and sore vexed. So um, it's a severe, it's a severe case. He's, he's, if we were to actually, this word vexed is the word to suffer. It's the normal word to suffer. So what the father is saying is absolutely true. He's saying he suffers horribly. That's how we would, we would put this in, in, our, in our speech today. And just as, as the boy comes into the presence, is brought into the presence of the Lord, a hor- horrible, severe attack of this takes place. 
Now, I said it's a somber scene. It's a somber scene for another reason, and that's not just because of the boy. It's a bit of a somber scene because of the disciples. So what's going on? If you notice, in all, if you were to look in Luke 9, Mark 9, or Matthew 17, you'd find something really interesting. This story is always, in each account, it immediately follows the account of the transfiguration. Why is that significant? Well, why it's significant is because, you know, the Lord took Peter, James, and John. He took the inner group, the three, with him up into the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what's going on below. The other nine disciples who are down here in the valley or, you know, where the people are, and we find out from Mark's gospel that there, a great multitude has come together, and there begins to be quite a discussion that's going on. And in the midst of this discussion that's going on, this scene takes place with this father and his son as the, as the father comes. There's, there's this big discussion that's going on between Jesus' disciples and the Pharisees, and, and Jesus comes up and asks, why question you with them? But in the midst of all of this, this scene takes place with his father, so you have the nine disciples who are here, and the father comes to the nine seeking help. Why, why do you think he does that? Well, perhaps because they had been granted this power. Perhaps because they knew, the man knew that they were the disciples of Jesus, and that Jesus regularly cured people who had these types of afflictions and problems, and and had a, pit, a power greater than any satanic power. But more to the point of what I just said, let's turn back to, to Matthew chapter 10. By the way, all of the accounts, whether it's Matthew chapter 10 verse 1 or Mark chapter 6 verse 7 or Luke chapter 9 verse 1, they all tell us this. So let's look at this. It says, And when he had called unto him his twelve disciples, he gave unto them, look at this, power against, what's the next two words? Oh, wow. He called his disciples and he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease. So perhaps because the man knew of Jesus and the man knew of his disciples and perhaps because those disciples had been out, as Mark tells us, if we were to look at Mark's account, they had been out ministering and had been doing those very things he had reason to come to them, reason to have hope, reason to believe that they could help him. But instead, we find that they can do nothing. And then, if we look at what it says in Mark's gospel, it causes the father to wonder if even Jesus can help. I want to read this verse to you because I think there's a lot of, a lot of seriousness in this. Mark chapter 9, verse 22, the father is talking to Jesus and he says, And oft times... It hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Do you see what I'm trying to say? How often do people come to us thinking that we represent the Lord? Thinking that we can provide help for them and we don't have any answers. And I think this is particularly true when you look at modern uh, liberal Christianity. People... People are desperate. People come looking for help, and they don't find anything. They don't find anything but a bunch of warmed-over human philosophy and works religion. And then they become disenchanted, 
And they think, well, and they write off Christianity. They write off all of the things that we know and hold dear because they've encountered some poor example of, of people who really didn't believe or people who weren't, really weren't walking with the Lord. They couldn't find any help, and so it became a good reason and a good excuse just to be dismissive of religion and dismissive of the church. You know what I'm talking about? I've always liked this story. Let me recount it for you this morning. Uh, you may know the name of the well-known church father and theologian, Thomas Aquinas, but the story is told of an occasion when he went to Rome to visit the Pope, and he got to the Pope's palace there in Rome, and he looked around, and he was just amazed at the, the opulence of the place, the wealth, all the trappings that were there. In fact, the Pope had something of a table in front of, in front of him as they were seated talking, and on the table he had gold coins, and he was counting the gold coins, and he looked at Thomas, and he said, See, Thomas, the church no longer has to say, Silver and gold have I none. Referring to the incident that took place in Acts chapter 3 at the beautiful gate of the temple. Thomas looked at him and said, True, Holy Father, but neither can she any longer say, Rise up and walk. And you really wonder if there's a lot of that that's true. You know, we've gotten to the place where we are well off. It's not like we're the church at Sardis anymore. Smyrna, I meant to say. I mean, if you're the suffering church, you have to be real close to the Lord. You have to really depend on the Lord. But boy, the moment we get a little affluence, we kind of get independent, self-reliant, cocky, all those types of things. And it's just like the spiritual power just ebbs away from us because we're not really close to the Lord. So there's no help for the boy. Here's, here's, a, here's a summary before we come to the last part of this. There's no help for the boy. The father despairs. And in verse 17, we read that Jesus groans. Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I bear with you? How long shall I suffer you? Then he says, bring him, that is the boy, hither to me. There's no help for the boy. The father despairs. Jesus groans. And the question I'm asking me and asking you is, how often does that describe us? Or how often does that describe the church? Set against this somber scene that we've been talking about as a sobering truth, and we find that in the last several verses, verses 19, 20, and 21. The disciples are humiliated. No one likes to be humiliated, but in this case, that's not all bad. They're embarrassed. They're chagrined. The Bible tells us in verse 19, they went to ask Jesus about this problem. And you'll notice an interesting word here. Then came the disciples to, to Jesus, and notice the next word, apart. If you looked at Mark's account, you would find that they were now away from the people and had gone into the house. So they're burdened about this. They've been humiliated by this, embarrassed by this, and now they take the occasion when they're away from the people, this is eating on them. And they take the occasion privately to approach Jesus. And what question do they have? Well, I've just shortened it down to make it simple for us. Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? That's what it says in verse 19. Why could not we cast him out? Why couldn't we? What, what, what happened? 
Why, why couldn't we cast him out? Jesus gave three reasons. And this is what I want us to think about as we sort of tie this all together. First of all, he gave faithlessness, and actually I think this is the primary thing. If you look at verse number 20, Jesus said unto them, because of your unbelief. That's the first thing he says to them. That's primary. These other two things are going to tie into it. They're sort of outworkings of it, but this is really primary. He says, because of your unbelief. For verily I say unto you, if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say unto this mountain, Remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove, and nothing shall be impossible unto you. And let me ask you a simple practical question. Is Jesus really advocating that we walk out of the church this morning, try to muster up enough faith to tell that ridge over there, be gone? No. No, I don't think we've ever really heard of that happening. I'm not sure we've ever heard of it needing to happen. But... Faith that moved mountains is a subject that's interesting. To be able to say to this mountain, remove yonder hence and be cast into the sea is a figure. It's a metaphor for that which seems to us to be absolutely impossible. Like last week, right? Isn't that what we were talking about? They were out there in the wilderness. There was no bread at hand. There were 5,000 men in the story besides women and children in the first feeding. And Jesus said, they don't have to depart. Give ye them to eat. And they're looking and saying, we're in the wilderness. We have but five loaves and two small fishes. And what are they among so many? This is impossible. This can't be done. The story of the feeding of the 4,000 wasn't a whole lot different. There were a few fewer people because it was 4,000 men besides the women and the children, but they didn't have a whole lot more at, on hand either. They only had only seven and a few small fish. It was just as impossible. But the whole thing that we were looking at last week was not if God's in it. Not if God's in it. And beloved, if we're going to see things happen for God, we have to believe that no matter how impossible it seems to us, no matter how unable we are to accomplish this thing that we're burdened about, if God is truly in this thing, when we approach God in our prayers, we can't approach him vacillating as if God, maybe you can, maybe you can't. Like the children of Israel, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Well, certainly God can furnish a table in the wilderness. The real question is, is this what he wants to do? Is this what he needs to do? We sang that song last week, God, any rivers you think are uncrossable. Can you think of any this morning? You think of, can you think of any situations that you're burdened about, you pray about, but there's a half of you that just kind of thinks to yourself, this will never happen, this will just, just never happen. Got any people with hard hearts you know about that these people are never going to have any spiritual interest. These people, this person will never get saved. Some of those are the ones that do. No, beloved, you know, William Carey, who is known to, to the church and known to us 
is, is the father of missions. He had a saying that I think encapsulates this whole thing. You heard this before? He said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Those two things go together if you think about it, because if you expect, you attempt. If you don't expect, you don't attempt. And this is the condition that so often paralyzes the church and paralyzes us as individuals when somehow we begin to lose our faith that God is able to accomplish these things. Unbelief ties the hands of God. Look back in Matthew chapter 13. Just go back a couple of pages and you will find this. I, I give us the, the Matthew reference because it's closer at hand than the Luke ref, or the Mark reference, but it, verse 57 says, And they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Unbelief ties the hands of God. I'm not saying I know everything impossible. That There's a lot of impossible things that God's not necessarily doing. It, it's discerning those things that he wants to do and he wants to work through us to do and having faith that when we approach him in prayer, he says all things are possible. And do we really believe that? I, I, I'm not just preaching to you. I have to call myself up on this all the time. So I'm praying about this. How, how committed am I? Am I praying half-heartedly, really trusting, really believing that if God is in this, that God can accomplish this? And that's really the root of the problem that he is. The Lord just, just groans. He's, it's not just true of the Father. It's not just true of the people around. It was true of the disciples. He, he was addressing them, and that's scary. So the second is prayerlessness because the one leads to the other. And we find this in verse number 21. The Lord says, Howbeit this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. But when we don't have much of a heart to believe, we don't have much of a heart to pray. You see how they kind of go together? The root problem is the, the heart that doesn't, isn't excited, doesn't really believe, isn't really in it for some reason. The prayerlessness. All I can really tell you this morning is, is, you know, beloved, you can talk all you want, but I'm going to tell you something, and if you can prove me wrong, come tell me after the service, I want to know, but I don't think you can. No matter what you say, no matter what you think, God has chosen to do things by prayer. Not exclusively, but definitely. And God is sovereign. He can do whatever he pleases but he has chosen to pour out many of his richest and most amazing blessings in response to prayer. I don't know why that is, except that God's ordained it, and except to make the practical observation with you this morning that it glorifies God. It glorifies God when we come and pray about things, even small things. In fact, sometimes I think the small things that we pray about that most people think God wouldn't even care about but we don't believe that, right? His eye is on the sparrow. And we sang, I think, that song recently, Does Jesus Care? But he does care. So even when you lose your glasses or 
you lose your pen or something like that. You know, I've tried to teach myself, just calm down. God knows where they are. Pray about it. And before long, really, most of the time, I've found those things. And I go, oh, praise the Lord. You know, it, it, it glorifies God. And the small things, the big things, they all glorify God. God has chosen to do that. You know, if you were starting to name some of the most famous preachers that the church has produced, certainly at the top of the list, maybe, maybe crowning the list, I'm not sure, you would say Charles Spurgeon. Many people believe, and I wouldn't quibble with this, think that Spurgeon was probably the greatest preacher of the 19th century. And certainly, as far as England is concerned, that has to be true. Do you know that Spurgeon left the legacy of over 63 volumes of published sermons? You think about that. That wasn't today. That was back then when it was a little more difficult to do those things. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. But, you know, even Spurgeon would readily tell you that it wasn't so much Spurgeon or his preaching as much as it was his congregation's faithful prayers. In fact, it's often been remarked that the whole church helped produce Spurgeon. Did you know this? When visitors would come to the church, especially if Spurgeon was there and they came and he was able to greet them. He would often ask them if they had, there was a few minutes before the service, if they wanted to see the, take a little small tour, he would often take them downstairs to the basement. You don't normally do that when you're giving people a tour of your church, right? You, you start with maybe the more <laughs> well-known and better appointed things, but Spurgeon would take them down to the basement. He would ask them if they wanted to see the church's source of power. He wasn't quite sure whether some of those people were maybe thinking he was going to take them to the furnace room or something of that nature. Instead, he would take them to a room where there was a large group of people who were gathered, pouring out their hearts fervently in prayer for the service that was to follow and for their pastor as he preached God's word. Spurgeon believed that the prayer meeting was the most important meeting of the church. That's a little bit at variance with what we practice today. We may say, but it's not always what we do. After D.L. Moody visited London, or, or rather England, for the first time, it would have been London as well, but he came back to America and someone asked him the question. They said, did you get to hear Spurgeon preach? He said, yes, but better still, I heard him pray. Prayerlessness. And then the last thing I want you to consider, and we won't spend a lot of time with this, although this is something really you could devote an entire sermon or perhaps a couple of lessons or messages too. I'm going to call it carelessness, but the Lord attaches another word here. He says, this kind. So this is quite a challenge. In other words, this is a severe case. The Lord admits that. This is, this is quite a challenge. Goes forth by nothing except by prayer and fasting. I choose to call this carelessness here because Well, simply this. We, what do we know about fasting? Well, we know that in the Old Testament, they, it was prescribed on some occasions. Um, it was practiced on other occasions. It was often resorted to voluntarily as a means of humbling oneself in order to be more focused, uh, 
Fasting tends to lend a, a focus and an urgency to prayer. Remember once in a while we would do this, we'd decide that we really needed to pray about something, and, and a couple times we had a, like a, we made it voluntary, but we, we had like fasting, and I get, and <laughs> I remember too in the church where before we came to Pennsylvania, we're in Illinois, and the pastor did that one. I used to always think to myself, every time I did that, I'd get about two hours, and I'd say, whose idea was this? <laughs> you know, because I'd get that about the time it was time to eat and I'd get past that and I start wouldn't feel well. And then I would begin to think to myself, hmm, maybe this wasn't such a hot idea after all. But you find it. And the thing of it is, it's a practice in the Old Testament that we find. You find examples of it in the New Testament. Matthew chapter four, verse two says that when Jesus was driven by the spirit into the wilderness, he fasted 40 days. You find um, in uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verse 15, um, you're right close at hand. Just turn back to this. This is maybe one of the better insights that we have into this. Uh, What Jesus was thinking when the subject was brought up to him, Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. Then shall they fast. So what was the Lord saying? Well, he was saying, well, there, there are going to come occasions when maybe that's appropriate. But I, I think also you find um, other examples. Uh, let's look at one other. Let's go to the book of Acts chapter 12. You find times when the, 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 the church practiced this. Acts chapter 12. Times when the church really sensed that it was urgent. Um. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 13, verses 2 through 3. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Paul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. But here's what I was going to say you can't find a command. You may find examples and you may have the Matthew 9 verse 15 verse that seems to indicate that the Lord expected that it would happen, anticipated that it would happen, but you can't find a command in the New Testament to do it. So I'm always very leery about being too dogmatic on this subject. I think it's there for us to use as the Lord directs us to use it. The point that I'm trying to make then by calling it carelessness is what had happened to the disciples? Had they become a little bit too careless? Had they become a little bit too lackadaisical? This is where I will ask you to look at one last verse. We'll go to the Mark account of this now. I saved this on purpose for the end to sort of make this point. But remember when I told you earlier that all of the accounts tell us that prior to this happening, the Lord had granted them this power. So we're going to see this now in in Mark's gospel. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits. If we drop down to verse 13, we find that they certainly did that. It says they cast out, many devils, and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Here's my point. Here's my question. Had they just kind of grown to expect 
this a little bit maybe like Samson. I'll go up and just, I'll get up and just shake myself as at other times. And he didn't realize that the Lord had departed from him. That's a more severe example, but I kind of wonder about that here. Had they just sort of grown careless? Had they just sort of gotten a little bit taken for granted that they could just go out and serve, go out and serve, go out and serve, and that power would always be there? When, beloved, the truth of the matter is that takes careful cultivation. You and I have to cultivate our walk with the Lord. It doesn't just happen. If you're going to be a person who's close to the Lord, if you're going to be a person who, is a, who prays, if you're going to be a person who has the, the presence of the Lord and the ability to help people when they come because the Lord is there and his power can work within you, that takes a certain amount of cultivation. So is it any wonder, really, that so often people come looking for help and they don't find it because you and I grow careless so many times about our Christianity and about our spiritual walk and we can go for perhaps days on end without really looking at our Bible. We can skip prayer for days on end and not really feel bad about it. But I'll close the message by telling you this, for all of their faults, the disciples were at least concerned enough to ask when it happened, when they bumped their chin, when they were humiliated, when they were embarrassed, when they were chagrined, it bothered them. And I think that's where the solution starts. That's half the battle won, if it bothers us. If, if we listen to a message like this this morning and we think, you know, that's true of me, but I don't care, that's another problem, a different problem. But if we listen to a message like this this morning, we say, you know, that bothers me because I think that's true of me. That bothers me. I don't want to be a, a careless person. I don't want to be a prayerless person. I don't want to be a faithless person. I want to be, somebody comes, the Lord sends somebody to me for help. I want them to find the real thing and be able, by God's grace, to, to be able to help them. Well, that's where it really, it, it all starts with that concern I've never seen this done. I don't believe I have to see it done to believe it, though, but there was a preacher that told an interesting story. He said it was his first church, and it was out in the country from where he lived. So he would often go to the church on Saturday, and he'd spend Saturday night, and he'd spend Sunday, and then he'd come back to town on Monday after the weekend and the services were over. He said often when he would go, he would he would stay with an older gentleman. The man was, happened to be 89 years old. And he was a coffee drinker. And the preacher um, apparently wasn't so much of a coffee drinker, but he'd come out in the morning and they'd sit down and the old man would be there at the table and he had a, an old-fashioned cook stove. And on the cook stove, he had one of those old-fashioned coffee pots where it's like the coffee's in there boiling. You've seen that, right? Not these modern contraptions. I mean, they get them hot, but I mean, it's not like boiling hot. Well, he said this man would pour a steaming mug of coffee. They'd be sitting there talking, and he said all of a sudden he'd pick it up, put it to his lips, and drink the whole thing straight down. Just like that. Well, whoa, how in the world? He said, if I attempted something like that, he said, I'd burn my mouth, I'd burn my lips, I'd burn my throat going down. 
that they talked about it. And of course, what it really amounted to, the solution to being able to explain why the man could do this was just because over the years he had done this enough that all of that tissue became insensitive to it so that it didn't scald him when it went down his throat. He had just kind of become, to pick up on what appears to be a theme of the morning, hardened. Almost like a man that you see that has all manner of calluses on his hands. He had once had a fellow come over to help me with an electrical problem. He'd touch something and it wouldn't shock him. I touched the same thing about knock me over. It didn't shock him. I don't know whether he just... I'm sure some, some things would shock him. I mean, you look at some of those power cabinets and I'm sure some of them are an immediate trip to heaven. But he touched those things and he couldn't feel it. It wouldn't shock him. And I have to think that between the roughness of his hands and just the years of working with electricity, the same thing was kind of true. He just kind of conditioned to it. It didn't really bother him much. And all I can really tell you what I'm talking about this morning is I don't care to be that way spiritually. I'd rather be sensitive. I don't mind shedding a tear if I need to. I'd rather be tender. I'd rather be in a situation that if I'm in a service or I'm in my car or wherever I am and I hear God's word or I'm just praying and thinking and something convicts me, I'd rather be in a position that I want to respond to that. If we keep ourselves that way and keep ourselves close to the Lord, then we won't have so much of this problem of people coming and sensing not much there. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come this morning with a hard thing, but we thank you that the disciples were concerned. May we be concerned. Help us, Father, to want to be genuine, to be real. We know we're not perfect. We know that we're not necessarily giant names or well-known commodity with people. But we're encouraged by how it tells us in the book of Acts that they took knowledge of them, that they had been with Jesus. And we desire to be that kind of person so that when you are ready to use us, when you bring us to circumstances and situations, and then for all of those things that we grapple with in our lives, that we struggle like this man who prayed, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Lord, we falter so often. We get overcome with these situations that are around us because so often they seem to be day in, day out. We pray, nothing seems to happen. Help us to know that as long as there's nothing wrong with us, there's certainly nothing wrong with prayer. We just await your time and your will. But along the way, I pray that you will encourage us with many answers to prayer. Burden our hearts to pray about many things so that as we hear answers to prayer, even as we were here Wednesday night and heard Brother Packer tell about the healing that's come more quickly than the doctors expected, help us to realize these things come about because we've prayed and because you hear and answer prayer. And may those things encourage us to realize there are many other things in just the same way that you can do, that you desire to do, if we expect great things from God, 
then lead us to attempt great things for God that you lead us to attempt. May we not be a spiritual liability or hindrance to others simply because we can't find a way to believe you and trust you. In just a few moments, I wasn't going to do this, but I think I'll do it anyway. Mark stole my closing song. But the more I thought about it, the more I kind of wondered, well, maybe God has that. So in a moment, we're going to turn to page 368. Um, once again, a tender heart. But I'm going to ask Kathy if she'll just play quietly on that song for us for a moment. I like to give us just a moment or two while she's playing quietly for us to think about what we've heard this morning. Maybe you'd like a moment or two just where you are to talk to God. So I need a tender heart. I'm like this man. I, I falter in my faith. I grow weak. I grow weary with well-doing. Lord, help me. I want to be genuine. I want to be the person you can use. Let's just each of us take a few moments to pray together. In our own hearts, let's talk to God. We need a tender heart.